everybody. Hey. Here we are. We're back after a long break and the world is the world's very different now. The world's not great to be honest. Yeah. We cuz we weren't we were planning on recording. I actually remember this very specifically. We had a plan to record with Dr. Daniel Replinger on in early April. Yeah. And then it became clear that that's illegal. It was supposed to be cocktails and talks topics talks, topics, yeah. Um but that didn't happen, and then we were going to postpone, but now we're in a permanent apocalypse, so we're just going to record anyway. And Dan Reppinger's not here today, but he will be on the podcast eventually. Yeah, he will. We'll just keep, like, teasing it. Yeah. So, to, to keep people listening. Maybe he'll come today, who knows. So, for those of you who are new, this is Grace Taylor. And Edward Dean Grom. And this is our podcast, It's Going to Be a Okay... Like the leg bone. Like the leg bone. Um, and in it, we talk about some medical mysteries. And some mystery mysteries. And uh, we're excited to be back. Yeah, welcome new interns. Yeah, welcome new interns. It's exciting to have you here. Um, and we just like hearing the sound of our voices, and we hope you do too. So <laughs> Amazing. So Grace um, usually starts us off by talking about a medical case uh which i don't know about so what do you have to talk about today let's see um you might know about this i think i told you about this oh okay so i'll pretend i don't we'll do it's okay if you do because we're, we're gonna review things that are it's not like there's like some crazy left turn in this case that gives away the whole thing um so i spent the last month in the sicu which was a journey um and I'm going to describe a case from there. So we, the SICU is a good place for surgical complications. And some people who have like complications on complications on complications and end up there for months and months. Um, this was one such lady. She was in her 70s. She had a history of a mechanical valve and was on Coumadin and then had a ground level fall and a subdural. Uh-oh. And that was like months before I met her. So she had been anticoagulated and then was obviously reversed in the setting of her bleed. And then this, we were like a month down the line. And in fact, her like neuro stuff was just like not even in the picture. But she was just basically someone who was chronically, chronically critically ill. Um, she had a bad heart. It was really hard to wean her from the vent, partially for that reason, which I'm not really going to get into today. But finally, after she had been there for um, in the ICU for about a month, she went to get a trach. Mm-hmm. Um, and five days later, we, I am post 28 hour call. So I've been in the hospital for over 24 hours. I had been awake, I think the entire previous night. Longer than any human should be awake. Longer than any human or animal, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, except Erin Bowler. Except, yeah, like she gets, she gets better and better with more time. <laughs> I do not. I get worse and worse. Um, so I get a call. It's, we're actually just about to round. I finished pre-rounding. I like the end is near. Um, and I get a call from one of the nurses that there's some blood coming out of the trach. And the nurses seem pretty worried. Um, so I walk over to... Which says something because ICU nurses see a lot of shit. And like they see a lot of bleeding around trachs, like post-trach. Yes. Yeah. So. so they certainly are more familiar with post-trach patients that I am by a many orders of magnitude. Um, and they're, they're a little bit concerned. 
So I go into her room and there are like a ton of, uh, not, there are like two nurses and an RT and another RT because it's right around shift change. And she's not bleeding right now, but they say that they've been suctioning through her trach and like maroon, thick maroon blood is coming out. And they show me like in the little canister how much has come out. She's not bleeding right now. Notably, she's so back on anti It's coming out of the trach, not around the trach. Correct. It's coming out of the inside of the trach. So that space that is her lungs, her trachea, her mouth, somewhere in there is bleeding. Um, and uh, she is notably on heparin right now and just got her trach five days ago. And so I look and there's not really any active bleeding. And I really don't know, to be honest. I know that there are some big bad reasons why trachs can bleed, but I don't know if you, it's like normal. Like, I don't know what's within the realm of normal and she's not bleeding right now and she's yeah. hemodynamically stable. So I call, but luckily the nurses, but the nurses are worried. And that was kind of like all I needed to know because they know much more about this than I do. So I called ENT um, and ENT said, well, she's on heparin. It's, it stops now. It's probably just a little bit of oozing. Can I come in two hours after I'm done with this case? Which is not like, a, this is not knocking ENT. They're extremely busy. There's like one resident covering a million yeah, people. Yeah, and they have to triage. The- totally, Exactly. Wait, wait, so how much total would you estimate that this patient had blood? Uh, like, I looked in the little canister and there was like two centimeters of like frothy, bloody sputum. So stuff. not a ton. Not a ton. Okay. It's not like there's yeah. like pouring buckets or anything. Like that's obvious. It's not like something where it's like, this is obviously a crisis. It was yeah, like, yeah, maybe yeah. this is just normal. I have no idea. Um, so, um, and ENT says, I'm going to come by in two hours. And I like look at the nurses and they're like basically like looking at me like you need to make this happen essentially. And I was like, listen, I'm so sorry. I need you to come here now. Um, and I, I really didn't know if I was being like a total drama queen because she had stopped bleeding. Like, so, but I was like, whatever, we're, we're pulling the trigger on this. So ENT comes by and they notice that she, they like, they fiber her, they examine her. We're like rounding at now at, at this point. Um, and they notice that there's some oozing coming from the top of her mouth, like the roof of her mouth. Um, that so did they, they fibered through the mouth? They fibered through the trach. Um, and then how did they... And they, and they like examined the patient. Oh, okay. <laughs> Highly <laughs> recommended. Which I frankly hadn't done. I didn't look in her mouth. Um, I mean, I had like examined her in other ways, but I didn't like look inside of her orifex. Um, and we were like rounding at this point, I believe. And the ENT like comes up to me and is like, yeah, she's oozing from her mouth. Like... Thank you for this interesting consult. I'm going to go to the OR. And I was like a little bit embarrassed because I truthfully hadn't looked at her mouth. And like, yeah, so I felt a little bit goofy. Um, and the plan was actually for them to go to the OR and then come back and maybe actually pack her mouth because, because she was on heparin. The oozing was like potentially going to continue. So fine, fine, fine. Um, the next, in terms of the actual like few things that happened next, um, I don't, know the exact like timeline or how everything progressed because I had signed out the patient to the next resident. And so I stopped being the one who went to the bedside when we got called for her while we were rounding. But then a code airway is called on this patient and we show up, all of us run over and she's very hypercapnic, very hypoxic. And they're suctioning a ton of blood out of the trach. Oh my God. So, Let's pause here. So, sorry, just to back yeah. up. Was she, she was on a trade collar? Like, was no, she, she was oh. on pressure support. She was on pressure support. Yeah. Okay. So she was always on a vent. She was always on a time. Yep. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. What, like, what is going through your mind when you hear 
what I'm describing. And you said the trick was five days ago. Correct. Right. So my, my thought is like we're in the window of like maybe a tract is is formed, but like I don't know if that path, that stoma is secure. Mm-hmm. And I, so if I have to remove this trach that's in there, I probably have to try to innovate her from above, above and it's going to be a bloody mess. Um, and so, but uh, so that's what's going through my mind in terms of like what approach I would need to take. It sounds like we think probably that she's in respiratory distress from bleeding into her airway. And so if you can get control over the bleeding without having to like change her access currently, then maybe that would be okay. Um, and that would be what I'd ideally try to do. But like the, the differential for like bleeding in this setting is like pretty wide because like maybe it's coming from her mouth and it's just the fact that she's on heparin. Maybe it's like, I mean, worst case scenario, a nominate artery. Maybe it's just like a bad granulation tissue or like maybe she's having hemoptysis for some other reason. Like she, uh, that, she, this is like a sick lady in the ICU. She could have a PE or whatever, or now she's on a heparin. So she could just be having like diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Totally. So like it's, this is scary, um, obviously. Um, and I think like my first steps would probably be to like, um, like, try to like maximize her actually I don't really have a way to think about this like so she's already on the vent so try to maximize her vent so that she's like getting air but if she's bleeding into the airway and you need to keep suctioning you can't really ventilate her well so you need to disconnect her from the vent probably and try to like get out the blood and bag her as best as possible I don't know yeah it'd be helpful to hear you talk through this yeah well you're hitting on all the right things and all of the walls that you're bumping up against are like the fundamental problems with this case and why this case is such a hot nightmare um the this is like we i last year gave a residency talk on hemoptysis Mm -hmm. and bleeding trach is like hemoptysis squared because you're not only dealing with bleeding in the airway and blood in the lungs you're also dealing with the whole like airway access issue which you're describing you basically have an a problem a b problem and a c problem right now and in terms of like which one to prioritize and how to like how to um because you do have a c problem because you said she's already like peri shock this whole time yes yeah so this lady's like not can't lose a lot of blood Totally, yeah. You may end up in a situation where you're transfusing or uh, and resuscitating okay. her from that end. Um, yeah, so you're like you have you're trying to like prioritize your ABCs, and you're trying to figure out if you can localize where this problem is coming from and fix it. Um, and it's all happening very emergently because she's obviously decompensating really quickly. So like all the things you're describing are like all the right things to be worried about. Um, let's. Let's back up from this lady, though, because it's kind of a weird case from our perspective where she's already in the SICU and we have everyone and their mother is, like, already there and already knows her. Let's talk about the bleeding trach in the ED a little bit. And just to... um, clarifying question did you have an anesthesia attending or a surgeon yeah attending? so we had um we had an anesthesia fellow and a surgery attending okay so our anesthesia fellow ultimately r- ran this code yeah and that was extremely useful because it was basically the anesthesia fellow and the ent fellow that were doing a lot of the intervention yeah the like diagnostics and intervention in this patient and this is squarely like in their both of their real houses yeah all right so in the ed yeah. So we, you have already, when someone like 
it's funny when you ask like medicine people like what do you what's your approach to a trach emergency they'll always talk about the like nice little piece of paper that's posted at the head of the bed in trach patients that says when the trach was done what kind of trach it is yeah. what like has the like tubes up there but obviously and then there's like a spare tube like yeah exactly that's bed. hanging there and like <laughs> the number for ENT is like written right there obviously we don't have that luxury because people come into us like and they're like Bleh! yeah exactly like, there we don't we don't know their name and they're 30 seconds away from dying so it's obviously slightly more challenging but if you so if you had a patient coming in with a trach in any kind of distress and you could get one piece of information from them what's the one piece of information you would is want is this a new trach that's that is a good or is that no no, no no i was i had two candidate answers <laughs> and then and do I, you have a larynx exactly exactly those <laughs> yeah. are things one and two that you need that you absolutely need to know um so for everyone for especially the our interns like there are two, there are many different reasons why you can have a trach as when you're out in the world or out at rehab or an LTAC or whatever. Um, but there are two, there are only like two different, dis- or one distinction that you need to make. And that's if this person has had a laryngectomy or if they just have a trach because they were a prolonged wing from the vent, or maybe they have some other kind of upper airway obstruction, which would be a separate issue that will come up later. But you need to figure out laryngectomy or no, because if they've had a laryngectomy, their mouth and nose is not connected to their lungs at all. So if you find yourself trying to intubate them from above, it will not work. Um, I learned a cute trick that you could use if the patient couldn't tell you and you didn't know. Um, Basically, you can take an end title and put it on their nose. Oh, interesting. you obviously we all know that you get some you can, there's like some carbon dioxide coming out of your esophagus and you can get fooled if you tube the esophagus and put end title yeah, on so which just happened to me i would oh really yeah i'll tell you that story another time <laughs> it was really scary i, I like the, i was with an anesthesia attending and like he was fooled too and then like it was a trauma area it was really scary and then like basically like afterwards he was like this happens sometimes like you have like a perfect untitled waveform for like a little bit and then it just like tanks and you don't horrifying. know why yeah truly horrifying really scary so <laughs> not a perfect tool but if you can compare at least you can compare the waveform coming out of the trach and which may not be perfect because maybe they're coming in in extremis for a reason that's gonna fuck up their waveform um but if you if you can look in their nose and mouth and see if they have the untitled waveform that could suggest laryngectomy or not um so fine. So that's one one critical question, and then the other critical question, which you mentioned, is is when did this trach happen, and why do we care about that? Uh, because basically, anytime you mess with a hole that ENT created too soon, you can create a false tract, and and basically, like let's say you shove a trach into there that you've taken out you might actually go down into the soft tissue of the mediastinum as opposed to into the trachea. And you might think that you're in the trachea and start bagging and just, like, cause a whole mess. Yeah, just yeah. totally. That's exactly right. So basically, like, the stoma is super immature, less than, like, 7 to 10 days, and the risk of creating a false tract is, like, quite, quite high. Um, so that's another really important thing to know. Um, so back and we can I kind of want to talk a little bit about like respiratory distress in trachs because it's another really good topic that kind of does like is related to um is like the next most common or probably more common actually than bleeding um trach emergency so mm-hmm. we, we should talk about that a little bit in a second but yeah so someone comes in and they have a let's say three week old trach and 
they had a little bit of blood coming out of it and now they have no blood coming out of it at all. What are, like, what are you thinking about? Um, so it's, it still could be, so the, the worst case scenario for interns is a nominate artery, which is like lies really close to where the trach is. And I think three weeks is still within the window of, and like is concerning for a, a bleed. And the concern is that you have a sentinel bleed. So you like, you bleed a little bit and then like that you can like open up, um, after like a reassuring hemostasis. And so that would be like something that I would want to make sure, but it also could just be like that they're bleeding. So I would probably like in that situation, maybe try to like fiber in the, in the trach. I don't know. I would probably be calling ENT since we're at an institution that we like are, can easily call them, but I'm trying to think if I was in the community, what I would do. Um, fiber is like a pretty low risk procedure in a three week old trach. If you're not going to mess with it and they're not in any respiratory distress and stable, you can just take a quick look at the airway. Um, but you can't say, but that won't tell you about the anominate artery. Like the, you'd have to look around the stoma and that's something that ENT is better at. Yeah, that's totally, yeah. totally. So, um, like you said, the big bad thing not to miss is a tracheonominate fistula. They used to be more common, apparently. Apparently, back in the day, they like there were differences in technique with with tracheing people, and they wouldn't measure cuff like pressures as readily. So the the risk is that the balloon basically erodes into the anominate artery, which is overlying the trach. And then they fistulize and then you're really screwed. If it does happen, the survival is like around 25%. Wow. So it's not great. But um, you're, the, the like key takeaway from this, um, which Eddie has already checked the critical action box on, is that you need to get ENT involved and they need to see this patient. And essentially, from my reading, basically it, people say frequently that all trach bleeds should be considered a, a tracheonominate fistula until proven otherwise. So if you're like, well, it's just a little bit of bleeding. Oh, there's a little bit of granulation tissue. That's a little bit oozy. Maybe it's this. Just have ENT come see them and like be better to be safe than to be sorry. Yeah. There is a role for CT angio in diagnosing this, mm. um, but this is not the kind of thing that you'd want to, that you would like get the CT angio read by a resident overnight as negative and like send them home, like yeah. get, getting ENT involved. Um, Okay, great. So let's say that this person comes in and they're actively bleeding out of their trach. What are some temporizing maneuvers you can do? I mean, so are then they're three weeks old? Yeah. I mean, you can, so you can inf super inflate the cuff, which is what I would probably do first. Um, do you know how much? I don't know. So much. I always, I have memorized this number and then doubted myself on it because it seems super high. The thing that you will read is 50 cc's. Whoa. Which seems super high. Yeah. Um, I, there's also what a, is it? It's a ten cc balloon. So different yeah. trachs have different. Um, well, not all trachs are cuffed, which is like actually we should get to. I'm gonna do like trach 101 in a second to just like define some terms. Um, but suffice to say that not all trachs are cuffed, and the cuffs are different sizes. There's like a wide range of sizes they can have. I haven't. I should. I maybe I'll talk to an ENT about this and then report back because I've never felt that everywhere. All the resources say like overinflate, but don't pop the balloon. And like, how, how the fuck are you going to figure that out in this like crazy moment? What I would probably do if it happened to me tonight is just put in 10 cc's at a time and like, see if you could stop the bleeding that yeah. way. Um, but it's, but yeah, so that's, that is one method is trying to overinflate the cuff. Um, what other tools do you have in your tool bag or what else are you thinking about? Um, I mean, if you, so if you try that and it's not working, 
It's just hard. Be- and this is assuming it's a mature... This is assuming it's a mature mm-hmm. stoma. Yeah, I, th- I mean, you can take out the trach and you can p- apply pressure with your finger, mm-hmm. um, which is like the... That, that's like the going to the OR like situation. You like put you hook your finger against where you think the bleeding is coming if it's a fistula um, and then just don't let go until they take to the OR. Um, but you also can like, if you get better visualization and it's not like a severe like arterial bleed, you if you can try like... I mean, I've seen... Um, uh, ENT like cauterize uh, mm-hmm. like sources of bleeding but I wouldn't feel really comfortable doing yeah. that in someone's neck um, totally as an ED provider yeah um, you could yeah I'm just I don't know I yeah mean, I... I, like all my usual tricks for like bleeding are not really applicable here like I you know, you can't really throw a quick clot in someone's stoma. You can't, like, inject later with that. I mean, you can, like, try those things, but the, I just don't think that there's going to be a lot of utility. Yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're like, totally... Well, you're, um, you're, what I'm hearing from you is, like, I'm kind of uncomfortable in this area. There's a lot of important anatomy. I'm not, like... I wouldn't be super comfortable doing most of the things I normally do, which is how I feel too about this. And I think how most people feel and is part of why it's so important to get ENT on board. The maneuver that you're describing can apparently be life-saving, although it does kind of feel like the kind of things that people say a lot and no one's actually ever done. Um, But basically if you can get your finger through the trach um, and then inferiorly to where the, the um, anomaly artery is, you can hook, hook your finger around the artery and pull anteriorly against the sternum. Mm-hmm. The sources I've read say that you need to be applying so much pressure that you can like lift the torso off the bed. Like you really, really need to pull. Um, there's a, kind of a timing issue that comes off when I like try to picture this in my head. The thing that I get hung up on is like, do you have to pull the trach out to get your finger in? And do you have to control the airway before you pull the yeah, trach out? Yeah, that's my question too. Because... Right. Because if you read this, any source will say... First, hyperinflate the cuff. Then stick your finger in and like do this maneuver. Then intubate from above, which is like doesn't totally make sense to me. What I would probably do in real life if this were, if someone were like in respiratory distress because of how much blood was coming out of their trach, I would probably intubate them first and just like take that out of the equation and then pull the trach. If yeah. there were like, if there was like some blood blood coming up, but they were managing it, I would probably hyperinflate the cuff, see if that would work, and take yeah. it from there. People also say that you can sometimes get your finger in while the trach is still in, but like I, I guess I've definitely seen people where like you, that's certainly not the case that their yeah. like stoma is not big enough for that. And I imagine you really just can't do this without intubating them because like if you take out the trach, yeah, okay, they're not getting any oxygen and they're not ventilating, yeah. and you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So this seems like one of your, like, you have so many competing interests um, that, like, crossing things off your list is probably useful. And just being able to control their airway in a way that you're familiar with and get an ET tube down is probably going to simplify things a little bit and make you feel comfortable about getting the trach out um, and maybe potentially trying to get your finger in. Yeah. Um, Thanks. The other thing Scott Weingart talks about um, the fact that you can intubate someone and then. And basically have your tube will not, will, will be like hung up at where the trach is. So they'll have both an ET tube and a trach. And then you can 
like you can do that first to just get the tube in the right place and then you can take out the trach and pass the ET tube further. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not like, it's not like you're not allowed to put an ET tube in while a trach is in. Like that's, there's, there should be enough room that you can get your tube past the cords and have the trach in. The other, so one important, uh, we've kind of already talked about like compressing the bleeding as a way of controlling it, either by hyperinflating the cuff or by using your finger. The other concept I want to bring up is bypassing the bleeding. So if this, when someone comes into the ED with this, you're not going to know where they're bleeding from. Right. Um, but if you can get the ET tube, if you've intubated them from above and you can get the ET tube deep enough that it's past wherever they're bleeding from, that will solve your whole breathing problem because you can tamponade the blood, the blood off with right. the cuff. Um, so that's another thing just to have in your mind that if you can localize the bleeding or guess where the bleeding is, you can essentially, um, isolate the, the lung away from it, which is kind of a similar principle to what you may be considering if someone comes in with massive hemoptysis from one lung. Right. Um, so it's kind of like, it's similar ideas there. And could you, I guess theoretically then you could actually just like put an ET tube in the trach and just like write main stem in or something until you kind of figure out like like you don't if you're having trouble getting access from above like you can potentially just do it through the stoma just with a longer tube and then inflate the cuff yeah you could if it's yeah um and that's kind of gonna that will yeah that is something that could buy you some more length and um and potentially something you're more familiar with also um the other thing I want to bring up is that if you are going to intubate these people from above, you need to be thinking about all of your normal considerations for a fluid-filled airway. So they're potentially bleeding arterially into their airway. Yeah. Um, and so setting up double suction, well, having yeah. the head of bed you've, elevated. You've hyperinflated the cuff of the trach, so you're like bleeding like up into your mouth. Yeah, and, yes. Yeah. You may have like a very difficult view um, you like you're at higher risk of esophageal intubation. Um, you need to basically be ready for like a total, yeah. uh, total shit show airway. Whew. Yeah. Scary stuff. Um, the other things, well, this actually isn't super, I was going to bring up nebulized TXA. Obviously if someone's bleeding from their nominate, that's like not going to get you very far. The other topic I wanted to bring up was like someone who comes in with dyspnea and has a trach. Mm -hmm. And I think actually just to like give some brief pearls about that, I'm going to give the outline that I probably should have given at minute one, which is like, what are the parts of a trach? Um, One pro tip that I would say to everyone, like of of all levels is go to youtube.com and watch videos of like, this is how you clean your trach. This is how you exchange your trach. The good news is lots of people in the community have trachs and their families have to learn about them. So there's like a lot of educational material out there and you will feel much more comfortable if you've seen all the parts and watch someone manipulate them at the very least, because it's kind of an intimidating piece of equipment. So basically the, the, the parts that you need to be familiar with, um, most trachs, have an outer and inner cannula. They have, so they basically have tube number one, the outside tube, and then a little tube on the inside, the inner cannula. The reason they have the inside tube is because it's not infrequent that the like thick secretions people have in their, in their trachea will clog up the inner tube and you can solve that problem by just plucking it out and you, then you have a new patent lumen. So people will have inner cannulae that are exchanged more frequently um, and that are available to pull out while maintaining basically the trach in place. Sure. 
Um, but the other thing to know is that people have cuffed and uncuffed trachs. There are like different, um, different indications for each. Some of your like speaking equipment is going to work on uncuffed trachs, but not cuffed trachs. Um, the key thing to know about this is that you cannot give positive pressure ventilation. So like ventilation that you would need to give if you were having someone on any kind of support for their breathing, you can't give that with an uncuffed trach. So, I mean, imagine trying to ventilate someone through an ET tube when the yeah. cuff is down, it's not going to work. Um, besides that, like go online and look at pictures and like try to see what it looks like when these things are being manipulated. So for someone who comes in, if, if someone comes in with um, dyspnea and they have a trach and you've asked your two questions about when they got their trach and whether they have a laryngectomy, what do you think, what are your like first few moves there? Um, I would, I would try to clear the trach to make sure it's not mucus plugging because that would be like an easy and probably common reason that's exactly have dyspnea. Um, but you also just like, yeah, I mean, these patients are at higher risk of all kinds of reasons to have like dyspnea. They could, they could have pneumonias and they, they, traits do not decrease your risk of aspiration, um, which ENT always reminds me. Uh, so I, th I think like you'd have to work them up as normal, but I, but like in terms of manipulating the equipment, I would probably take out the inner cannula and try to suction it or replace it. Um, have RT there to, um, try to like give some breathing therapies maybe. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure what else. No, those are great things. Those are going to fix your problem in like the vast majority of cases. Like you said, like mucus plugging is the most common cause. Um, and either putting a flexible suction catheter down in there and mm -hmm. like sucking it out or dislodging the mucus versus just pulling out the inner cannula and getting that off the table are going to be like the first two things that you do that will mostly work. The next thing to think about if that doesn't work is that the trach itself can be malpositioned. Um, and oh, great. it yeah. can be useful to fiber and look and make sure you're seeing that you're like seeing trachea and that you know the trach is in the right spot. Um, in looking at like flow charts about trach, like um, how to manage trach emergencies, there's kind of the, the big breakdowns. Like we, if someone has a trach that's greater than seven to 10 days out, um, and they didn't have a laryngectomy, you can like exchange the tube and, or, uh, or intubate from above right. and fix most of your problems that have to do with, with airway obstruction. Um, if they have a trach that's less than seven to, day, to 10 days out, out, you can just intubate from above also, unless right. they, if they don't, as long as they don't have upper airway obstruction or laryngectomy, like you can intubate from, from above and just not worry about the trachostoma. If you're in a situation where they're less than seven to 10 days and they have a laryngectomy or their reason for getting a trach was some like crazy, like base of tongue tumor or something that you're not, or like larynx tumor that you're not gonna be able to get by, then you're like fairly screwed. Um, yeah. And like, this is something that you, you're, I mean, if you're like, if someone is truly in distress, you're gonna be getting anesthesia and ENT very quickly anyway, but this is like something you want to make clear to them that they need to like leave the OR and come, yeah. come right now because this is a mess that you can't fix by yourself. And then if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're a little fucked. Yeah, you're a little fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did your best. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what happened with this lady? So this lady, so she coded, um, <laughs> but what, what ultimately happened, um, she coded, she got pulses back. They fibered her. She had a bunch of granulation tissue in her airway, right at the, um, like right at the distal end of the trach. 
So they actually exchanged her trach for an ET tube, which was longer, so that they could bypass where that tissue was. Okay. But it was still bleeding, no? It it was still bleeding, but it wasn't bleeding into her lungs at that point. Okay, so they secured her airway, but then... Yeah, I guess. Yeah, then they ended up... Then um, I went home, and then they she got nebulized TXA, and she got bronched. Um, And then we, like... It was... It it was kind of a... um, a challenging situation because the thought was that like her being like agitated or her moving had caused the trach to like rub up against her trachea but like so many people move after trachs yeah yeah so it's yeah yikes yeah yikes is right so it was like the end of the trach was like rubbing against her that's what people thought wow yeah and she was on heparin so yeah that made things worse is she okay right now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank God post-call Grace said, I didn't, get I, here right now. I, I don't think that that ultimately changed her outcome because ENT was like, it's from her mouth, stupid, and then left. <laughs> but it really was, it did, it did allow me to check the, I covered my ass box. Because yeah. um, if I had blown it off and then it, she had coded, that wouldn't have looked too cute either. Um, wow. So she coded from probably hypoxia? Actually from hypercarbia. From she, the, she had obstructive disease already, and then the blood in her airway made it harder to ventilate. And ENT said, they said this like in passing as she was coding, but they were like, yeah, it's not, super un- it's not uncommon to get hypercarbic in that, in that particular setting. Wow. Yeah. Trachs are really scary. They are really scary. But we don't really get... I mean, we get trait care in the ICU, but we obviously don't see that many patients. Yeah, do, I've, like, so. never touched one with my real hands, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're, like... Yeah. yeah, they're advertised as very scary. Well, that's interesting. It was good. It was nice to, like, see it and think through a little bit of it. I do wish it hadn't happened on my post-call day because I was, like... I had, like, two brain cells to rub together and, like, was, like, barely forming new memories at this point. Um, but it was in- it was interesting to watch to watch the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, ENT deals with some gnarly stuff. They do. Oh, my God. They really, really do. Yeah, they're crazy. There's a lot of important stuff in the neck. This just in. This just in. We had... I know we both had carotid blowout cases. Yeah. Yeah, that... Um, that's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. That's actually the wildest thing I've ever seen in an ED, I think. Was... I guess other than the perimortive C-section at 1 p.m. on Thursday. That was really wild. We were both there for that, too. Yeah, me, you, and Emily Neal. Oh, my God. That was probably the craziest thing I've seen in an ED. Yeah. I don't think anything will ever. Hopefully. You never know. Ugh. Yeah, I know. We're still early in our life. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, well, so ear, nose, and throat doctors deal with the throat, which has a lot of crazy anatomy, but they also deal with the ears, and... I um, am going to talk about, do you need to get refill your drink? No, I'm, I'm ready. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about... <laughs> Slash, I don't know, do I? <laughs> I'm going to talk about the Havana Syndrome. Oh. Yeah. Wow. One, killer segue. Two, I'm really excited because I have really have been curious about this and I've never read about it. Um, I mean, the bottom line is we don't know uh, as many of the things that I talk about here. But so basically like... For those of you who have been living under a rock, 
Um, and I guess also just like a lot has happened since then. So maybe you forgot. Yeah, that feels like a decade ago. <laughs> Early in Trump's presidency, like pretty soon. So to back up, um, in the late stages of the Obama administration, we decided to reopen diplomatic relations with Cuba and we reopened the American embassy in Havana, which had been closed for many, many years. And, um, and so diplomats were there living with their families. There were also CIA operatives living there, um, probably under the guise of diplomats. And, um, Trump, uh, assumed office in 2017 and, and sometime in, in, so actually like right in the fall of 2016, um, there started to be these diplomats in Cuba that American diplomats in Cuba that were complaining of a strange array of symptoms that, um, that seemed consistent among different reports. And so it started with this patient zero who said that he had been hearing some strange noises and then was feeling really unwell. And the descriptions of his symptoms were vague, but they, it was like loss of balance, um, headaches, uh, hearing loss. And, um, and then basically like he started telling his superiors about this and then they noticed that some other people started having these symptoms. Uh, and eventually it, it spread to like almost like 30 people were reported to have pretty severe disability, disabling symptoms, um, from this, whatever this mystery syndrome was. And the, it was not everyone heard sounds before it, but the common theme was that you either were in your home or you were in a hotel room and you, uh, when you first started to feel the symptoms and usually you would hear a sound like that was annoying and, and preceded the onset of the symptoms. And so, uh, and so people would describe it in different ways, but, um, but usually they said, so they, they said they could kind of like point to a location where they felt the sound was coming from. Uh, and, and it didn't last, it lasted for minutes. So, I think the lowest reported was like 30 seconds and like the highest report was like 30 minutes um, of, of, a, of, the of, sound. of the sound. And then the symptoms were chronic. So people, some of the people that suffered from this are still having symptoms today and they don't know, um, and they don't know why, but we'll get into that. And so basically like, I don't know if you remember it. So this was in 2017, it was unfolding. Um, it, Rex Tillerson was the secretary of state at that time. Oh, and, I forgot about him. Yeah. <laughs> and was, uh, and was trying to kind of like maintain like a, a measure of, of good diplomatic relations with Cuba, but was concerned that there was some sort of, you know, warfare, like subterfuge going on. And, um, and basically they evacuated like a, a, a high proportion of the American, um, diplomatic you know, staff, uh, of Cuba, uh, because they were really concerned and it was, it was like a ton of people. And then Canadians in Cuba started to experience it. So there were like 20 Canadians in the Canadian mm. embassy that started to have the same symptoms. Um, and so, uh, these people like, well, I'll talk about what happened to them when they got back to the United States, but, um, it was investigated by many, many different, um, organizations. And then, it kind of was like felt to be resolved, like once people were um, removed from the source. Uh, but then in, I think it was in 2018, I think late 2018, they noticed that diplomats in, in China were experiencing the same thing. In China, American diplomats. American diplomats in China. In China. Um, I think there were a few in Beijing and then the most cases were at this consulate in, 
and this is what I was listening to because I never know how to pronounce the province. Is it Guangzhou? Guangzhou? Whatever. Um, but they were, it was at this big consulate in, in Guangzhou, China, and it, they basically had this, a very similar constellation of symptoms. Uh, and so just to back up and make it medical, um, like the description of the symptoms are kind of like our worst case scenario ED patient. Like, I was thinking that. I was like, was that diplomat discharged by multiple ED doctors? Yeah, exactly. Like, it it's, like, it's like vague neurologic symptoms, like um, cognitive difficulties, hearing loss, nosebleeds, headaches, um, and, and like um, ataxia. pandas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so what... What do you remember of this and like what do you what are your first thoughts? About I remember it? thinking that was like some James Bond shit um when people when I first heard about it. I also remember wondering like what motive made sense like if the Cuban government had a problem with American diplomats like don't they have a, uh, some like official and unofficial but non-attacky channels to like deal with those problems and like driving people out by like obscure secret sonic weapon like doesn't make like doesn't make a ton of sense um right. so i remember thinking like maybe like is it another actor like is like it, what and I obviously don't know enough about any kind of diplomacy to like understand what really would be people's motivations here, but like it just seemed it seemed weird. It seemed like a weird tool to use. Yeah, like if you think about like another actor, like let's say Russia was involved because they want to like mess up the U.S.'s like reaching yeah. out to Cuba and restoring diplomatic relations. Um, but yeah, it feels weird, right? Because like why would it seems like a kind of like roundabout way yeah, to get Yeah, like they people. could have just been like, thank you so much for coming, we are not welcome here. Yeah, or they could have like poisoned people, yeah, I classic. guess, right? Like, I mean, it just, it seems kind of like... Right, and especially because it's this like tool that no one's ever, to my knowledge, is like not understood and is sort of revealing to the like intelligence and the military community yeah. in the world that they have this tool. Like, if I yeah. had this tool, I don't know that I would use it for this. Like, yeah, and we're saying tool, but, like, what is that tool, right? But so, but you're, but I think you're very right to put to say tool because that was what people, everyone's mind went to in this, and that, that's where a lot of the focus of the and the rhetoric has been around um, when people talk about this case. And so, and so like, the theories about wh where... What's causing this are very wide, wide ranging, um, but let's focus on the like tool aspect and like the weapon weapon mm -hmm. aspect since that's actually like that's actually something that's still ongoing and mm -hmm. in, in policy circles like and when I was doing this research like people actively talk about this as like an act of of um, like espionage by the Cuban government hmm. and it's interesting because Cuban doctors were involved in the initial care of these patients and people didn't trust the Cuban doctors like opinions because they were like, Oh, you're Cuban doctors. You're like associated with the government. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, I mean, my understanding, I'm not an expert, but Cuban medicine, like the Cuban med yeah. healthcare system is pretty amazing. Yeah. And, um, and like the doctors are very well trained. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it just is, it, it, it sowed a lot of discord in international relations yeah. um, and a lot of distrust. So, 
So if this was a weapon, like, what would that be? And, right. And so you use the word sonic weapon, which I think is what most people went to because they were describing a sound. Um, but it, it basically... So we know that the range of sound is like, you know, we only hear a small portion of the, of the range of what's possible to create sound. In. And if this was a, in the audible range of sound, if it was a weapon that was in the audible range, it would be pretty impossible for that to to be used as a weapon without, like, everyone knowing. Right, so that's what I was going to say, is that, like, it sounds very focal. Right. Like, they managed, this happened to Americans and then Canadians in, I don't know if there were if there was collateral damage, but I don't, I don't under, I don't know what can, like, shoot sound so directionally. Exactly. Like sound and, and so the U.S. actually does have these secret weapons. I mean, they're not so secret because now we know about them, but they're, there's weapons that are sound-based, that we used to like, I forget what it, um, it has an acronym, but it's like this mob, mob control, like sound generator or something. Mm-hmm. And, and basically it's like, it's an acoustic targeted weapon that is mm-hmm. supposed to like disperse mobs because it's, um, it's like, it, it is like very disturbing to the ears. And like, that's kind of, I guess in the current climate kind of yeah, scary that that could be, yeah. Parts um, but, and then there's like a couple other like ways that they found, but these like require like big generating machines everyone can hear them it's not like it's like a ray gun that you can point at a window and have people like like only one person experience the sound so that was quickly ruled weren't there some family members diplomats family members who also family members did yes so it was like people living in the embassy so yes it could be but but my the point is like your point stands you would know if like a big weapon like that was being used and if they found a way to like weaponize something small into a smaller thing that would be a pretty advanced technology that doesn't seem to exist yeah um so then there's like let's think about the range of like other types of sounds that we can't hear so ultrasound on the higher end of the frequency Mm -hmm. and so we use ultrasound obviously all the time in like a non like external environment setting but like Ultrasound's pretty safe, but the, the leading theory of if this was ultrasound um, is this thing called, and now I'm forgetting, but basically it's like, um, it's like when different frequencies combine. So like multiple, uh, yeah. I forget the, it's like internal. Um, um, like constructive interference. Yeah. It's, it's, it's basically uh, that, that's basically what it, it's a different term and I'll, I'll clarify it for our errata, but, um, but basically it is multiple machines that are creating ultrasound um signals and then they're basically combining to um to create a, a audible sound to the to the uh, people and then and then causing some some difficulties um, and symptoms like that's that doesn't seem super popular as an opinion because as we know like ultrasound is pretty safe and like you would have to that would be like a pretty it would have to be a pretty targeted and like and unusual thing for like multiple ultrasound signals to converge on like multiple families in in Cuba. Um, it just seemed that that basically was ruled out. Like although it is still considered, uh, and then infrasound was also considered, which is like you know sound that's below the mm-hmm. uh, the hertz levels that our ears can hear, and that that's like also lower. Uh, that that thought is that that's not the cause but interestingly when i was reading about infrasound the studies of infrasound have um have shown that humans when they hear it don't hear anything 
but they feel like something supernatural is happening hmm. and they feel a sense of impending doom and fear. Because they can feel the vibration. Because they can feel the vibration. And actually there's like all these like rabbit holes you can go down where a lot of people think it's associated with like ghost sightings and like things hmm. where people are like saying they're experiencing the supernatural or maybe where they are accessing infrasound. Um, but again, that's like not a very popular because like the, the type of machinery and like and coordination and it's not it's basically not clear that that would create like medical symptoms that would last for a long time. Yeah. So actually, like the sonic, despite like the the media and the U.S. government and all these people talking about a sonic weapon, like that that kind of like is not is felt to be like hmm. not a reason. It could be an infection. It could be an infection. It could be so a, a they did, poisoning. They did MRIs on on a lot of these people, mm-hmm. and what they found was that uh, so they found basically that a lot of them had evidence of brain injury. Boo. So they had evidence of basically a, a a significant concussion in a lot of these people, which is weird because like you know obviously. The, there's a lot of criticism of the way that these studies were done because it's, there's no control group. It's very yeah. like, it's very just like targeted and like who they, it's people coming back with symptoms that they just scanned, but, but it's not like a study. It's like yeah. a medical investigation. Of- but they found that a lot of these people had evidence of brain damage. Mm. Um, and no one really knows, like, like all the studies just report the findings, but then they don't try to like predict what caused it. Yeah. So the, the medical investigators that looked into that, like, are separate from the people that are trying to like investigate what the cause is. Um, one theory, um, so you mentioned poisoning. One theory is actually um, uh, organophosphate poisoning, which like that's not describing the symptoms that they yeah. have, as we know. And for our interns, organophosphate poisoning is like the killer bees. Se- se- yeah, and secretion, po- secretions everywhere. Like you're like vomiting and pooping vomiting, at the same pooping, time pooping, yeah you bronchospasm yeah and like you know when someone has um but but basically the thought is like maybe they're having like subtle low levels of organophosphate poisoning and they are getting these neuro neurotoxic symptoms um that are like permanently damaging and long lasting uh and the reason that that's brought up is that because in cuba um zika was like a huge thing mm-hmm. around this time they were widely spraying pesticides in um in multiple places i find this to be a not super convincing explanation because you would think like other people in yeah. Cuba would have exposures if that was yeah. the case. So one theory that is the probably the most common theory right Wait, now. Wait, can I guess? Yeah. I have two more guesses. Yeah, go ahead. Guess one, blast injury or like, this is basically the same as sound, like a big pressure wave that imparts force to their brain. Yeah, so That's I, And then theory two is psychosomatic <laughs> folia. However many of them there are. Falia two. All. Oh, okay. I was like... Yeah, so I, I mean, blast injury... <laughs> I think, like, the pattern of their injuries actually would would go with, like, some sort of, um, like, motion injury. But there was no report of that, right? Like, no yeah. one... And, like, you would know if your hotel room, like, shook to the... Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I think that, that that was what was puzzling to people is, like, it... it it seems like they had like motion problem, like a, you know, um, um, like a shaken baby syndrome <laughs> in their head, and like that, and there's no 
actual trauma that happened. So that's like less common as an explanation. But the one before I talk about psychosomatic, um, and that actually is being like considered in the highest levels by like by people, and I find to be just crazy, is um, is microwaves. And so microwaves like the reason that this is like brought up as like such a legitimate explanation for this, um, for this, these symptoms is in the cold war in the 1950s, the U S embassy in Moscow discovered that there was a building nearby that was emitting microwaves targeted at the U S embassy. And they never could figure out why these microwaves were being targeted there, but it caused, and for a long time, this was kept secret from the American public, hmm. from everyone, but they investigated it and they did all these studies and they, they let it kind of happen because they were like trying to figure out yeah. what the, what the um, Soviets were doing. And the leading theory now is that the Soviets had put a listening device in something in the, um, in the U.S. Embassy, and that that would not... It was a listening device that wouldn't get picked up by bugs because it didn't, like, emit anything mm-hmm. um, or wouldn't get picked up by the sweepers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when, when it gets hit by microwaves, it gets activated or, like, basically they can, like, access the, like, data that it picks up. Um, so that's the leading theory of why they were um, doing these microwaves. But basically they increased the microwaves in 1972 the like the frequency and the concern was that like are they trying to cause health problems in the like US embassy population and the the all the studies have has shown that like microwaves are pretty safe and if they do cause health damages they have to be at like really high levels mm. and usually it's like burn damage it's not like That's or internal organ uh whatever but interestingly and I'll let, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, uh, I was going to say when I was like a, a tween, we had this microwave in my house and when we turned it on, everyone in the room would get a headache. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. So yeah, maybe. Wait, actually? Yeah. <laughs> like everyone would just get I just a remember headache? that now. Like I never like, that was obviously before I knew anything about science and I never like well, came okay, back so to like this fact check whether that made sense. And I shouldn't have said that I think it's crazy. I do think it's crazy that microwaves are an explanation for this specific case, mm-hmm. but microwaves are like, it could be a whole topic to talk about in themselves. So basically like there's this, um, oh, I, I forget it, but basically it's, it's this eponym, um, uh, like reaction that people get when they're exposed to high levels of microwaves. So microwaves cause obviously thermal um, increases Mm -hmm. in your body. And usually that's like very safe. Like even at the levels that we're like, we're experiencing like standing in front of a microwave. But if you are exposed to microwaves at a certain frequency, your inner ear heats up um, to like, even just like a a hundredth of a degree Mm -hmm. and it creates distortions in what you're hearing and so you Hmm. can hear sounds and you can and you can hear even like people talking because like basically you're like you're hearing these like abnormal like vibrations in your in your inner ear and you're like ascribing a meaning to them um and so uh that's like that's one thought like oh if this if these people were like victims of a microwave attack like maybe they're hearing like something that that whatever that effect i think it's called the hertz of or the the fits effect or something. I don't know. Um, but basically like, um, that, that like they're hearing a sound and then they're getting like permanent microwave, like neuro damage. Um, and that, and it was like a targeted attack. Um, so I find that like pretty unlikely, but like, that's like it being considered at the highest levels of the Pentagon hmm. and the joint chiefs of staff, which is, it's crazy, right? Like I, 
I don't know. Like, what do you think, like, about this? Because I think we should talk about the psychosomatic stuff, but, like, it's just interesting that, like, that's being entertained at the highest levels without any evidence that that's, a, that that's what's going on. Yeah, I feel like I don't have a sense of which of these not plausible things are the most plausible. Um, and I also, like... That's A. B, I feel like I need it. I'm glad that our physics boyfriends are not here and correcting our understanding of waves of various kinds as they want to do because I feel like I don't, I like don't really know what the like health benefit or what the not benefits, what like the health effects of any kind of like high energy wave is. Yeah. So I mean like microwaves are radiation, but they're not ionizing radiation. So yeah. they don't cause like the type of, you know, Chernobyl shit yeah. that like we get scared of, but they you know, they are, they cause you things to heat up and alter molecules. And so, yeah, I, 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 it's plausible, but it just seems very, it would seem pretty crazy that they would have weaponized it to that extent. But I think like people are fixated on this because, um, it happened in the 1950s and like there's, and in the 19, I think it was in the 1970s, this um, guy published a book, the scientist in the United States, called like zapping America and basically it's about like how our microwaves like are so beyond like worker standards in like most countries like they emit radiation that is like unsafe our like kitchen our kitchen microwaves and like what people are exposed to on like a day-to-day basis Mm. so basically he's arguing like this is like it's not it's not totally crazy that people could like have bad health outcomes from from Mm. a microwave exposure um but so so if this is caused by something maybe we'll find out one day but um but i think like most now it's kind of resolved right we're not seeing any new cases and um and people are generally doing okay in most embassies and across the world except if they're victims of personal violence but um but the the psychosomatic like concern is like is so fascinating to dive into because i think that um, it's, it's basically like, it's basically replicated throughout history in like multiple settings, like, and, and like mass hysteria, mass hysteria, which like, I just, when I was reading this article beforehand, it was like saying like mass hysteria, like invokes like a crowd going crazy with like a little hint of misogyny. Like mm-hmm. there's like, <laughs> it's like obviously not a great word to use, but it, it, has happened in the middle ages it's happened like throughout like t- throughout all recorded history where like groups of people experience these somatic symptoms and then it goes away it just goes away and no one really knows what why it happened and maybe there's a physical explanation but despite like a heavy investigation into that they've never found one yeah i um, feel like like most things that are blown off by the medical community probably some fraction of it is like just not understood mechanistically totally but this is usually i mean the the thing that goes with these like what are called psychosomatic or like mass um mass hysteria events are usually like just like everyone in like a school like if you search if you search like crazy illness in school or crazy illness in factory or crazy like you'll get these reports of these like case clusters where it's just like these all everyone has the same symptoms it usually starts with one person that says like I, 
I'm having like something vague. And then like they have a meeting about it and then like multiple other people get it and then it gets in the media and then multiple, and which is the same way coronavirus, right? So like, it's hard to yeah, like separate what is like favorite, real yeah. and what's not. Um, but in New York, for example, in the like, in 2012, there was a high school where all these people, all these kids started twitching and having tics and they started, um, they started uh, like having Tourette's, like like swearing. Mm-hmm. And, and this was just out of the blue, like, I don't know how many, like 30 high school students. And then they called in Aaron Brockovich to this school to <laughs> investigate the ground for like metals and like to like try to see if there was like waste that like, was put. And like... But, Basically, I like the idea that Erin Brockovich is like personally a scientist. And yeah, she, she like was walked in and was like, "Let me sample this soil." It's just crazy, and like so, basically, like they never found anything from this, and it just disappeared. Like it just went away. Wow. In Tanzania, there was the laughing case. Did you ever hear about that I think at, the, so. at the girls' high school? It was like they, all, or maybe it was an elementary school. Just like all these girls were laughing hysterically and couldn't stop laughing for like weeks. I on feel like end. children should be excluded from these definitions because kids are just so That's wild tr- all yeah. the time. But like, imagine if like these kids could never stop laughing. Yeah, That's crazy. Um, so I think the common thought is like, okay, maybe like it's a reflection of like the stress of our time. They're in a high stress environment. Hashtag like, unprecedented times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then this, this article I was reading was like, oh, maybe people are, um, maybe people are more the symptoms that they experience kind of reflect like the time they're in. Like we live in a time of like noise pollution and like being afraid of like, like, you know, secret like weapons and like Hmm. world politics. And so maybe it's just like, you're hearing a strange sound. You think it's like uh, a weaponized attack and you go from there. Um, But I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I think. I, I'm probably lean on the side that this is like, this is kind of a group, psychological thing but huh, it's, wow yeah. bold opinion yeah i don't know which is like not typically how i li- yeah lean usually on these. you're like it's ghosts yeah it's good i usually think it's <laughs> my ghosts. answer is ghosts yeah i don't know i feel like th- these things like this always interest me because it's never i don't have a good handle on what's like a realistic advancement in technology that could happen in secret like in like biological sciences which is what i at least have like the most albeit limited exposure to like you kind of can't very easily like do something that's super crazy and out of the realm of what anyone else is doing without people knowing about it like there's so much collaboration and there's so much building on other people's research yeah. that like but like in like I, 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 but my, in defense, in defense, yeah, in cryptography, and yeah. like like military stuff, where people are trying to develop secret weapons, I think that there's a much. My suspicion is that it's possible to get much much further fully in secret, but it's just kind of wild when you yeah. think about like how much like uh, how limited you would be if you were in a team that could only share amongst itself and only yeah. collaborate amongst itself. And I guess it is plausible that this could be, this could be a a weapon in the sense that like we wouldn't have seen it used in warfare because it's not useful in warfare to like because it yeah. it's this like slow like, chronic concussion yeah. type thing so maybe i yeah i don't know it's a i i don't know if we'll ever know but i think if it is technology like we'll certainly see it again at some point um yeah yeah hopefully those people are doing okay but it's super fascinating you should re- go down the rabbit yeah holes, really. i will yeah also another rabbit hole we should go down um, which isn't really like quite in either box. It's actually like distinctly not in either box um, of what we do on this podcast is 
diplomatic immunity. Have you ever read, like, you probably just know about it, but, oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the cases that have happened of, like, diplomats doing crazy shit in oh, other yeah. countries or in, or this country. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's so crazy because my, you know, my good friend, Russia, um, used to work for the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, like, a, like, she basically was a foreign citizen working for the UN. So she was a diplomat and, like... She obviously didn't commit any crimes or any diplomatic immunity, but like she would tell me these stories, like from something as benign as like parking tickets. Like you just could park anywhere yeah. in New York City, yeah. and you don't have to ever pay your parking yeah. tickets, which is crazy to me. Totally. To like you know more severe things where people yeah. are um, are like committing crimes and then they just like can get away with it, uh, which kind of like. I I actually did, like, a whole research project on head of state immunity, which is, Hmm. like, a whole fascinating thing, too. Like, the idea that, like, because you're the president of somewhere, you don't, you're not held accountable, which is, like, we're seeing kind of here. But presumably we shouldn't live, we don't live in that society um, in the United States. But we literally do. Increasingly showing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, like. That was the concept. That was the concept. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a whole, we should go down that rabbit hole, actually. Um, All right. Well. Hope you guys enjoyed those interesting facts today. Those <laughs> that that collection of facts. So what uh, what are you excited about coming up? Oh man, this is hard because we're in a global pandemic and people. It's illegal to do things and it's illegal to have fun. Um, yeah, I guess I. I am. I'm gonna be on. This is such a lame answer. I'm gonna be on the pain elective, which is gonna be fun because I feel like I know. I'm so sorry I said that because like. Uh, but it will be it'll be good you, I mean it's fun being on elective you can yeah, just like yeah. relax a little bit I'm on elective right now learn about nice. one topic um, there must be something more fun than that though where we don't like it I don't have I literally have no plans yeah because that's how this this life works now. I guess like I have plans but I'm like maybe shouldn't but they're like <laughs> illegal plans <laughs> No, I'm just gonna see my family, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And they, my dad, tested positive for the antibodies. So, yeah, that's great. Is, he is safe, which is maybe, really, maybe we don't know. We yes, have no idea. we don't know. Maybe he's gonna get a chronic concussion and uh, yeah. hear a weird sound and uh, have a trach bleed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the possibilities are limitless and truly fearsome. Yeah. Um. I accidentally swallowed a plum pit yesterday so now you're growing a tree in your yeah stomach in my GI tracts. yeah and i texted dan to make sure that i wouldn't get cyanide poisoned what did he say he said it was probably fine as long as i didn't chew it so if you had chewed it you would die of cyanide i was i actually didn't look up how many you have to eat um and if i were a real toxic od member i would know this off the top of my head but um it's there's some level that you can yeah, you can get, like, clinically significantly poisoned from chewing up pits of stone fruits and maybe some other pits. Oh, this would be in the errata. Oh, yeah. Apple I seeds. I thought apple was something else. No, apple's cyanide, I'm okay. pretty sure. I eat apple seeds all the time. And then something has ricin in it, but... Oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. It's like this... Like castor. a chestnut? Oh, castor, castor bean. Castor yeah. beans have ricin. Because they use it in Breaking Bad, which is really just crazy. Ricin's a pretty crazy poison. Yeah. We should have a. We should have like maybe that's our, our Dan one. We'll talk about poisons. Yeah, I have toxicology. Like famous cases of poisons. They all toxicologists have a encyclopedic knowledge of like the names and dates of the Soviet Union 
members that the were plutonium poisoned. And, yeah, and yeah. like they love that shit. Yeah, that's... actually, there are some great unsolved mysteries around poisonings. Yeah, we should. We should. Uh, there's yeah, there, uh, and the there's, Tylenol. Yeah, yeah. Murders. The like there was some. There's this crazy case of this poisoning that happened. Oh God. I'm going to look it up and do it on the podcast. Yeah, cool. It. Yeah. All right. Well, hope everyone's staying safe and sane. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. I don't really have words of, like, true reassurance in this Yeah. Time. Yeah, everyone just keep doing your best. Do your best. We're all just doing our We're best. We're here for you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We love you. We love you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. What do I do? Just do a good one. Like, how do you... Oh, do you want just, just one? Yeah. Okay, good. Do a double shake. Good. Okay. Great.